experts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Well, thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner and senior wealth advisor here at the XML Financial Group. If you want to learn a little bit more about us and what we do for our clients, you can always visit our website. It's xmlfg.com. Once again, xmlfg.com. Or you can reach out to us directly. The number is 301 I have a lot of ground to cover and probably not enough time to get it all done, but I'm going to try. Let's jump into the pool. Let's get going. I'm going to be talking about the banks for obvious reasons. We have a bit of a scare going on. So what does that mean to you, the investor? Does that mean you want to buy the dip, sell the rip, or just hold on? I'll talk about that in a second. But before I do that, Let's talk about the current state of affairs for the the equity markets. We are just about to finish off the first quarter of the year and jump into the second. So I thought it'd be a great time to look at what the market may or may not be telling us. And hopefully we can gain some insight on what changes we might want to make to our portfolios. And to do this, I'm going to be concentrating on three pieces of the puzzle. One, interest rates. Two, earnings. Three, volatility. First, let's look at interest rates, specifically the two-year treasury. As a little refresher, the two-year treasury can be used as a proxy for the market's expectation for short-term rates. Simply put, it's the market's guess of what the Fed is going to be doing. And as we wrap up the quarter, the market's telling us once again that the Fed is done raising rates. Well, maybe. Yes, inflation's come down a good bit, but let's face it, it still has a long way to go to get to the 2% target the Fed wants. And the Atlanta Fed's GDP model for the economy is still growing 3.2%. The big move in the two years, that's where the price went up and the yield went down. This big move that we've seen over the last couple of weeks resulted in lower yields. And that shows a higher level of conviction than all the other prior moves we've seen over the last year, which means the market seems to be really, really, really sure the Fed is done raising rates. Problem with that is, is the market's been dead wrong over the past year. Maybe they get, excuse me, maybe they get it right this time. There are two Fed meetings this quarter, May and June. And the futures market expects interest rates to peak this quarter. And right now, they're pricing in a 97% chance of a rate cut by the end of the year. That might happen. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But just keep in mind that Chairman Powell has said, higher for longer, higher for longer. To me, a 97% chance of a rate cut That seems a little optimistic. Either way, 97% odds of lower rates, that doesn't leave a lot of room for error. And the reason that they would cut rates if they do, it would be because they would think that a recession is imminent. 
rate cuts would most likely be a big boom for stocks. So that's the bonus part of it. Another piece of the puzzle, earnings. The market, or I should rather say the analysts, are expecting that this quarter is going to be the trough. This is going to be the low point in earnings, and then we're going to start climbing again. According to FactSet, analysts are expecting earnings in the neighborhood of about $51 for the first quarter, and then $55 for the second, $57 for the third, and north of $58 for the fourth quarter. If you total all those up, it comes up to about $221 for the year. That's $221 in earnings for the year on the S&P 500. That's what's expected. Let's do a little backwards math. The S&P is trading at roughly 4,000. Divide that by the $221 in earnings, which means the market is trading at 18 times this year's expected earnings. 18 times. Pre-pandemic, you know, when inflation was almost non-existent, interest rates were low, growth was abundant. Back then, the PE averaged about 18 times earnings, right where it is now. But things are quite different. 4,000 on the S&P does make sense to me. I will say it does make sense to me if the S&P can earn that $221 that they're expecting. Because that would mean, yes, growth is coming back and rates are certainly going lower at that point. Let me play a little devil's advocate here, though. Just, Just for fun. Let's say earnings bottom this quarter at $51, but growth just becomes elusive. Maybe the, the banking crisis slows business development down a bit and what have you. Just for argument, let's say earnings bottom and they stay flat. The S&P earns about 200 for the full year. That's 10% lower than current expectations. Put an 18 average type multiple on that, and you have a market that would be trading at 3,600 or about 10% lower than where it is now. Just something to think about. And again, just like interest rates, with the market at 4,018 times earnings betting on growth, there's just not a lot of room for error. Not impossible, just not a lot of wiggle room. Lastly, I want to look at volatility. You heard me talk over the last couple of years, you know, I've been looking at the VIX to find signals on where it might be a good time to, to add to positions, to trim positions. Let me, let me emphasize, I'm not, a, I'm not a trader. I'm just, and I'm not trying to time the market, but the VIX has worked tremendously well over the last couple of years. Right now, again, markets at 4,000, you've seen volatility decrease substantially over the last four months. Instead of seeing three or 400 point moves away from that 4,000 level, well, you're just seeing 140, 180 points of volatility. So volatility has come way, way down. And I think that's due because people are increasingly confident that the Fed policy is, is going to be more steady and predictable going forward. So, yes, the market has settled down compared to last year. I don't know exactly what else this tells us other than that the market seems pretty sure of lower rates and earnings are going to come in on target. 
So here's my tape takeaway. Let me add these three pieces of the puzzle up, put them together. The S&P is finishing the first quarter with some small gains. That's after a big January. And as we pull into the second quarter, the market seemed to be priced for a sure thing. A sure thing as in a 97% chance of a rate cut, confidence that earnings are going to come in and that they've already bottomed, they're going to be growing 15% for the rest of the year. All this with a very smooth ride, low volatility. Now, this could very well be right, but I think it's overly optimistic. So I just can't jump up and down and pound the table on stocks. I'm going to stay cautious as we roll on into the second quarter, and I'm going to selectively add quality when it looks inexpensive like I always do. I want to be a little bit pickier here. Let's switch the conversation over to the banks. Value investors, conservative value investors like myself, have in general loved the banks over the years. I know I have because they've typically traded at lower price to earning multiples compared to the market. They've paid higher dividends than your average stock and they go up and down like they are doing now. That means that you buy them when you think that they're cheap. You trim when you think that they've gotten expensive. Personally, I only have one core type holding in the banking sector that I don't fiddle around with too much just because I think it's such a great bank. But the others, I do plant and prune. I don't want to fall in love with them because remember, stocks don't love you back and they can turn on you. Let me start with my conclusion on the smaller, mid-sized banks. I think if we get some stronger rallies, you might want to look at lightening up on the smaller, mid-sized names. I'm okay with holding on to the more larger quality names, maybe even add a little if you feel so inclined. Understand, the sell side is so hard, so hard to talk about. Because I don't know you, I don't know your situation, I don't know the, the names in your portfolios, the, the cost basis, none of that. And that's why I've almost never talked about the sell side. 20 years on radio and doing podcasts, almost never talk about the sell side because there are just too many variables. So, well, you know what? Let me change this up a bit. Let me put it this way. Instead of saying lightening up, sell, buy, whatever, let me say this. I would rather be underweight than overweight these names. Maybe that's a better way to put it. I would rather be underweight than overweight these names. I'm assuming everyone's been following along with the news over the last couple of weeks on on the trials and tribulations of these few mid-sized banks that have run into trouble and a couple of the foreign counterparts. A couple of days after the news broke, I was on an investment call and I got asked the question, is now a good time to buy the regional banks? They're all down. Seems to be where the trouble is. Maybe there's some opportunity there. My answer at the time, and again, this was what, two, three weeks ago? My answer was no. If you're an active trader, your perspective may be totally different than mine, but I've been managing portfolios for a long time and I've lived through a banking crisis or two. And I know that they don't just last a day or two. These things take weeks, if not months, to work out. And I have the scars to prove it. I've also learned over the years 
that I don't need to catch the absolute bottom of the market to make money. There's usually still some upside once things settle out a bit. And that's one of my many rules that I have. I don't buy two week lows because prices can go lower. I'd rather wait and see a stock or the market for that matter. Come back, find some footing, and then start coming back before considering it. So in other words, I'm never bottom ticking the market or the stock. Now, to be clear, I don't expect the current state of events to turn into another great financial crisis either. I think this is primarily a mid-sized banking issue that does need to be paid attention to. So for a little background, banks with less than $250 billion in assets are home to almost half the domestic deposits and account for half of the commercial and industrial lending, as well as more than half of the mortgages that are out there. And if you dig a little deeper, about 40% of the deposits at smaller banks actually exceed the FDIC cap of $250,000 for being insured, which is, I'm sure, making more than a few people a little nervous. Yet, the vast majority of the smaller banks, they aren't subject to the same capital requirement, capital and liquidity requirements that the larger banks are. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole on the ins and outs of banking, but here's the main problem. Banks take in short-term deposits and they lend out longer term. Give you a quick example, quick, easy, hypothetical. Bank sells you a one-year CD, so they're going to pay you 2%. Then they turn around, take your money, they lend that money back out through a long-term mortgage. Say they get 4% on that mortgage. So the money that you gave them is going to cost them 2%. And then they're going to earn 4% on the mortgage. That means that they earn the 2% in between. They earn 2% for doing that. The difference between what they're paying you for the deposits and what they make on the mortgage, it's called their net interest margin. As interest rates have gone up, the cost of deposits rises and the value of their long-term bond portfolio actually goes down. So in other words, if interest rates go up, the value of a bond goes down. It's an inverse relationship. So as rates have gone up, the value of their long-term bond portfolios have gone down. And consequently, some of these smaller banks, they could be sitting on large unrealized losses in their portfolios. Now, why is this a mid, small, mid-sized problem? Well, people aren't worried about the larger banks because the larger banks typically turn around and hedge out this risk. So it really doesn't become a problem for them. But the smaller mid-sized banks usually don't. As a result of the rapid rise in interest rates, along with no hedging and, and perhaps a little bit of poor management, the smaller banks don't have enough capital to give back to depositors, depositors if they all turn around and demand it at once because they would have to sell all these bonds and we know these bonds are sitting there at losses. They just don't have enough money to, uh, to meet the withdrawals. So to calm things down, the treasury stepped in and they allowed the FDIC insured institutions 
to borrow in full against the face value of their treasury holdings for up to a year. Not what they're worth, but what the face value is. In simple terms, what they've done, they've effectively extended deposit insurance beyond the $250,000 FDIC cap, hoping that that prevents any run on a bank. Let's think about what all this means going forward. I know we talked about a lot of stuff here. As I said earlier, rather be underweight than overweight the regional banks. Few reasons. I'll give you five or six of them. The first thing, according to the senior loan officer survey, the proportion of banks reporting stronger demand for loans has been falling as interest rates have been going up. That makes sense, right? Higher interest rates reduce affordability. The house that you were going to buy when more when you could get a three percent mortgage is now out of reach because the mortgage is six percent. Same thing with businesses and their projects. All this means is lower loan demand. From that same survey, you can see the loan conditions are tightening too. And that's because lenders are concerned about the value of the collateral and are the borrowers going to be able to make enough money to pay us back and the environment gets challenging. Bottom line is lenders are getting picky too. So the banks are making fewer loans with tighter requirements. The third, I think delinquencies are going to pick up. If the economy slows down, which as a reminder is what the Fed wants, if they get their way and growth does slow and you throw in tighter credit conditions, some of these shakier type businesses won't be able to refinance their loans. There's a lot of zombie businesses out there that have been living on free money for a long time. Maybe this is the end for them. Fourth, you can see the pressure on the net interest rate margins like I was just talking about. Smaller banks are going to have to raise their deposit rates over the next few quarters just to boost their liquidity and attract assets. While at the same time, they're going to be making less on the loans and making fewer loans. Think about that example I gave you a few minutes ago where they were selling a 2% CD. Now they have to sell 3% CDs or pay you 3% just to attract the new assets. And they're not making as many of those 4% loans. So you could very, very easily see their net interest rate margins fall in a real hurry. Fifth, everyone in banking going to be looking at higher cross, higher costs across the boards, both the big banks and the smaller banks. I don't think anyone's exempt from this. One thing for sure, the FDIC insurance is going up. The government said that no taxpayer dollars are going to be used for a bailout, but the cost is going to be covered by increasing deposit insurance premiums, meaning the banks are going to have to pay for it. Another cost increase is going to come from increased regulation and capital requirements. Even though some of these banks kind of get to the end here, even though some of these banks look at inexpensive on a PE basis, when I add up all the headwinds facing the earning side of the equation, well, I come to the conclusion that a cheap stock, if a stock looks cheap now, it can get very expensive with the price just staying the same, 
because the earnings have fallen. I would also say that in times of stress, market stress, investors tend to focus more on book value than on earnings. And as of right now, I don't know who's too sure of what the book values of some of these businesses are. So let me jump back to my conclusion. I'd rather be underweight than overweight the midsize regional type banks. That's all I have time for today. If you have questions, feel free to reach out. Phone number is 301-770-5234. Remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them. I'm Eric Whiteman, and this has been Common Sense Investing. listen to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talk about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and are not necessarily those of the XML Financial Group. I typically own and trade the securities I'm discussing, both personally and for my clients, but not all of them. Likewise, employees of XML and our affiliate broker-dealer may be trading and providing advice regarding the securities I mentioned to their clients as well. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, you should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I suggest you get someone who's qualified in those areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. I like to make projections and other forward-looking statements, which are just that, opinions and are not actual results and are only valid as of the date of this recording. Things change constantly. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.